Section 65 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals, by Charles Louis Cornish, Editor. The Pouched Mole A still more essentially insectivorous marsupial is represented by the little mammal discovered only a few years since in the wild sandy wastes of central Australia. In form and habits, it so nearly resembles the familiar European mole that the title of the pouched mole has been very suitably given to it. At the same time, with regard to its remarkable organization, it constitutes the sole representative of its peculiar family group. The first suspicions of the existence of this singular little animal were raised by the observation of peculiar sinuous three-lined tracks at irregular intervals on the surface of the sandy regions it inhabits. After long quest with the aid of the aborigines, the first specimen was discovered reposing under a tuft of coarse porcupine grass. A further investigation elicited the fact that its burrowing proclivities were much less pronounced than those of the ordinary moles, the little creature progressing alternately over the surface of the sand, and then ploughing its way for several feet or yards, two or three inches only beneath the surface. All efforts to preserve examples of this marsupial alive for longer periods than three or four days proved abortive. For though the remains of ants and other insects were found within its viscera, it refused to feed upon the living supplies that were provided for it. In fact, the animal itself apparently ran the greater risk of being eaten. The color of the poached mole is for the most part light fawn, varying in parts to golden yellow. One of its most conspicuous features, as illustrated in the accompanying photographs, is the abnormal size of the third and fourth toes on the forelimbs, their peculiar scoop-like character proving of eminent service to the animal in its customary sand-burrowing habits. The Tasmanian Wolf The remaining family of the Australian marsupials constitutes a parallel to the carnivorous order of the higher mammalia, all its members being more or less flesh-eaters and having their dentition modified with relation to such habits. One of these, the Tasmanian wolf, or tiger of the colonists, better known to zoologists as the Thialakine, is an animal of considerable size. Its dimensions equal those of a wolf or mastiff, with which the contour of its body, and more especially that of the head, very nearly correspond. In common with the true dogs, the Thialakine hunts its prey by scent, this is well attested to by the following incident, as related by eyewitnesses. While camping out among the hills in Tasmania, their attention was attracted very early one morning by a brush kangaroo hopping past their fire in an evidently highly excited state. Some ten minutes later up cantered a she-tickaline, with her nose down exactly on the track, evidently following the scent, and in another quarter of an hour her two cubs came by also on the precise track. While not very swift, the Tasmanian tigers, 
possess immense staying power and will keep up a long, steady canter for many hours on end. Accustomed in its primitive state to run down and prey upon the kangaroos, wallabies, and other weaker marsupial mammals indigenous to the regions it inhabits, the Tasmanian wolf speedily acquired a predilection for the imported flocks of the settlers, and proved almost as destructive to them as its old-world namesake. To check its ravages, a price was put upon its head by the Tasmanian government, and this measure, into conjunction with the rapid advances towards the complete settlement of the country, which have been accomplished within later years, has compassed this animal's extermination in all but the wildest and most inaccessible mountain districts. The color markings of this animal are somewhat striking, the gray-brown tints which characterize the ground hues of the body and limbs being varied by a series of dark bands traversing the buttocks, these being widest in this region, and continued forwards to the middle of the back. A somewhat similar cross-stripe pattern of ornamentation occurs in the relatively small member of the same family, described later on as the banded anteater. Examples of the Tasmanian wolf have frequently been on view at the Regent's Park Gardens, a very fine young male specimen being at present located in the marsupial section. Within a few weeks of its arrival, it was on excellent terms with its keeper, though, owing to its somewhat imperfect sense of vision during the daytime, it was apt to snap, somewhat promiscuously, at those attempting to cultivate its close acquaintanceship. That a bite from its formidable teeth is not to be lightly risked will be made abundantly apparent by a glance at the successful yawning pose photograph secured of this example by Mr. Medland, and here reproduced. Although the thicker line is at the present time entirely limited in its distribution to Tasmania, it occurs in the fossil state on the Australian mainland, while, singularly to relate, the remains of a closely allied form have within recent years been unearthed in Patagonia. This circumstance taken in conjunction with the fact that many other fossil types, with Australian and New Zealand affinities, have been discovered in the same South American strata, has strengthened the supposition maintained by many zoologists that in bygone ages a vast Antarctic continent, spreading through the areas now occupied by the southern Indian and Pacific Oceans, temporarily united the now distinct lands of South America and Australasia. Next in size to the thylakine, but possessing more unenviable notoriety for the uncompromising sulkiness and savagery of its disposition, is the animal which, in virtue of the aforesaid qualities, is known by the title of the Tasmanian Devil, in shape and dimensions, this marsupial carnivore somewhat resembles a badger, but the head is abnormally large, the masseter muscles which control the action of the powerful jaws monopolizing a very considerable share of the face area. The limbs are short and also very powerful, the front paws being well adapted to its burrowing habits. There is some slight variation in the colors of this marsupial apollon, and, as the aphorism runs concerning his sable namesake, he is not always so black as he is painted. More or less, 
or in fact mostly black he always is, but there is usually a redeeming thread or patch of white upon his coat. This may take the form of a small star-like spot only on the front of its chest, which not infrequently extends to a narrow crescent-shaped band or line, continued round the neck almost to the shoulders. One or more supplementary spots of white may also be developed upon the flanks and hindquarters. The destructive propensities of the Tasmanian devil, wherein the farmer's sheep and poultry are concerned, are in no way inferior to those of the Tasmanian wolf, and in consequence of their former much greater abundance, the havoc these animals committed was the more serious. Placed like the last-named type, under government ban, these native devils have, in comparison with the earlier days of colonization, very considerably ceased from troubling, and with the ever-progressing march of settlement and civilization, will probably be altogether exterminated, at a no very distant date. A bag of no less than 150 of these marauders, in the course of one winter, was recorded from an upland sheep station some twenty or thirty years ago. In common with the thylakine, it has been observed that the Tasmanian devil has a marked predilection for prowling among the seashore in search apparently of crabs, fish, or any acceptable flotsam and jetsam that may be cast up by the waves. Examples of this most unamiable of mammals were brought in alive on several occasions to the Hobart Museum during the writer's residence in Tasmania, but in all cases obstinately resisted every attempt towards the establishment of a friendly footing. Their ultimate relegation to the specimen cases was, under the circumstances, unattended by any very poignant manifestations of regret. A fact, brought into prominent notice during subsequent post-mortem investigations, was the extraordinary extent to which these animals are infested with vermin. Possibly this circumstance is to a considerable extent accountable for the creature's unconquerable irritability. The experiment as to whether a course of disinfecting treatment, by baths or otherwise, would not conduce towards the taming of this native devil, where all other applied methods have failed, would at all events be worth the trial. The bath, pure and simple, is a wonderful soporific for unruly tempers. As most schoolboys know, a pail of water, from which the patient is withdrawn when a watery grave is apparently inevitable, is an unfailing specific for the taming of mice and other small deer. The writer's experience was a villainously savage cat, which one night fell incontinently into an uncovered cistern, and was rescued by him at almost the last gasp, will not be readily forgotten. The cat, though still a vixen to the ordinary members of the household, forthwith attached itself affectionately to its rescuer, and would sit for hours awaiting his arrival on the doorstep when the business of the day was over. Other fierce creatures, including the Tasmanian devil, would possibly prove amenable to the judicious application of the water cure. The Native Cats The animals common in Tasmania and throughout the greater portion of the Australian continent, and familiarly known as spotted, or native cats, and to zoologists as dasoiris, enjoy also an unenviable reputation, 
for their depredations among the settlers' hen-roosts. To look at, these native cats are the most mild-mannered and inoffensive of creatures. Actually, however, they possess the most bloodthirsty proclivities, and may be aptly compared in their habits to the stoats, weasels, polecats, and other old-world carnivora. There are some five known species, the largest being equal to an ordinary cat in size, and the smaller ones about half these dimensions. All of them are distinguished by their spotted pattern of ornamentation, such spots being white or nearly so, and more or less abundantly sprinkled over a darker background, which varies from light grey to chocolate brown. In the commonest form, represented in the accompanying photograph, the ears and the undersurface of the body are also often white. No two individuals, however, are to be found precisely alike in the pattern of their markings. The dasturies differ from the two preceding types, the Tasmanian wolf and the devil, in being essentially arboreal in their habits, living by day and breeding, as the majority of the Australian opossums, in the hollow gum-tree trunks, from which they emerge at nightfall to seek their food. This, in their native state, when hen-roosts are not accessible, consists mainly of birds and such smaller marsupial forms as they can readily overpower. The Pouched Mice The so-called pouched mice represent a group of smaller-sized carnivorous mammals, which have much in common with the dasoiries, but are devoid of their spotted ornamentation. None of them exceed a rat in size. They number about twelve or fourteen known species, and are distributed throughout the greater part of Australia and New Guinea, and extend thence to the Aru Islands. They are said not to occur in the extreme north of the Australian continent. The writer, however, obtained an example of the brush-tailed species, here illustrated, from the neighbourhood of Broome, in the farthest north of Kimberley district of Western Australia. This specimen, which was caught alive in a rat-trap, exhibited astonishingly potent gnawing powers, almost succeeding one night in eating its way through the wooden box in which it was temporarily confined. The habits of this species are omnivorous, and chiefly akin to those of the ordinary rats, it being accustomed to prowl round the outbuildings at night, picking up any unconsidered trifles in the way of food that may be left unprotected. Many of the smaller members of this tribe are no larger than mice, and in one form known as the Jerboa pouched mouse, inhabiting Queensland and New South Wales, the hind limbs are abnormally prolonged, and the animal progresses by leaps and bounds, after the fashion of the true Jerboas, or its nearer relatives, the ordinary kangaroos and rat kangaroos. The Banded Anteater one of the most interesting from the zoologist's standpoint, and the last on our list of the Australian marsupials, is the little creature limited in its habitat to Western Australia, locally known as the squirrel. The banded anteater, with reference to its striped ornamentation and anteating habits, is the name by which it is usually chronicled in natural history works. In size and shape, except for its more pointed snout, its squirrel-like aspect is certainly somewhat striking. Like the true anteaters of the edentate mammalian order, it however possesses a long, protrusile tongue, 
with which it is accustomed in a similar manner to lick up the ants which constitute its main food supply. The most interesting biological peculiarity of this animal is the abnormal development of its teeth. These number as many as from 52 to 56, and exceed the dental formula of any other known existing marsupial. The usual color of this interesting little animal is a warm chestnut brown, banded transversely over the back with white, these stripes being widest and most conspicuous over the hindquarters. This somewhat paradoxical marsupial possesses no pouch. The young, when first born, and attached to the nipples in the manner characteristic of ordinary marsupials, being covered over and concealed among the longer hairs that close the abdominal region. In the Dasuris, or native cats, previously described, the pouch exists only in a rudimentary condition, its function being fulfilled by merely a few skin folds, while in the tiger and native devil, the pouch, contrary to that of the kangaroos, opens backwards. In disposition, the banded anteater presents a marked contrast to that of many of the preceding types. Caught in its native habitat, it does not attempt to bite, and soon becomes reconciled to captivity. The peculiar nature of its diet, however, militates against its being easily transported oversea from the antipodes. End of section 65